The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. It is time for Streetwise with former chief of the New York City Sheriff's Department, former chief of the Seagate Police Department, retired New York City detective, Time Warner Public Access Media Award, Joe Franklin Super Excellence in Broadcasting Memory Lane Award, New York Veteran Police Association Streetwise Productions, host of Streetwise, Mr. Lou Tolano. Uh, good evening and welcome back to uh, Streetwise. You know, two days ago, December 7th, was the 76th anniversary of our entry into World War II, December 7th, 1941. Obviously, when I say our entry, uh, the United States of America. Uh, but the world, the war was already going on in Europe. My guest on the phone, on the line, I have to tell you this, he would think he was involved in the war, the research that he's done. And uh, well, let me uh, just give you a little brief background uh, in regard to my guest before I get disclose his name. He's a renowned conservative uh, scholar, and he's, uh, oh, I'll tell you, he knows all about ancient history and military affairs. Uh, New York Times best-selling author. Uh, author and editor of over over 40 books, senior fellow uh, at the uh, Hoover and Sanford Universities, uh, military historian of uh, modern and ancient uh, warfare. And I'm going to talk about him. And uh, uh, I, I tell you, I the book, what a great book. And this, this uh, my guest is so knowledgeable. It's a pleasure to introduce Professor Victor. Davis Hanson, welcome to uh, Streetwise, Victor. Thank you for having me. Wow, you, you know, it's it, when I say uh, interesting because uh, you were actually born uh, eight years after World War II ended. Yet, uh, you, when you when you browse through your book, uh, it, I, you get the feeling like you were around during that time, even not being in the war, but like living through what. Uh, we did who were not in the war and the atmosphere. Uh, I, I think I have an idea how, uh, in regard to family members being in World War II, but what inspired you among your books? What inspired you to do a great book, another great book, I should say, uh, Professor uh, Hansen? Well, I mean, everybody, there's seven or 8,000 books a year on World War II. But yes. I thought that because I had some background in ancient medieval renaissance. I had distance. That was number one, and I could look at it from a different way. I'll just give you one example. I'd look, if you just sum up the war in terms of who died, 65 million deaths in six years was the largest catastrophe to civilization, mm. uh, greater than the 14th century Black Plague. Mm. And, and then what was unusual in the history of wars of the last 2,500 years, it was the first major war where the losers lost far fewer than did the winners. And more importantly, or more tragically, of that 65 million, 80%, 50 million were civilians Civilized. out of uniform and unarmed. So the war was largely a, a story, I don't think people had emphasized that enough, of German and Japanese soldiers butchering innocent people in Russia, China, and Eastern Europe, oh. and that, so we're, I was trying to look at look at it freshly from a, a classical historian's point of view. And then I, I was interested because my father had flown forty missions in a B twenty nine, 
over Tokyo, and the person that I was named for, his brother, was killed on Okinawa mm. uh, on the last day of the taking of Sugarloaf Mountain. So I grew up in a household out here in rural California where there were a lot of families and relatives that talked about it incessantly when I grew up. When you, when you, uh, when you lecture, is that what you're saying? When I grew up. Oh, oh where I, you grew I, up, I, you were grew yeah, up. Yeah, I grew yes. up hearing war stories, and mm. and I was struck how different they were. One uncle was in the Aleutians. One is, was transferring lend-lease material to Iran. One was on a ship. One was in a tank. And they it just didn't seem like one war. It seemed that it was so diverse and so... Uh, um, so many peop- different allies in the Axis that who knows what somebody in Bulgaria had in common with a Japanese soldier yes. in Australia, yet they were on the same side. Yeah, from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. From the, yeah. Yeah, amazing. But, you, you know, the uh, people look at it, uh, especially young people, they, uh, they can recall December 7th, which, quoting FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, date that will live in infamy, and that's when he uh, got the declaration uh, through Congress to get into the get into the to the war. But the war was going on prior to uh, 1941, correct, uh, Victor Hansen? Yeah, it, it, it had been going on since September 1939. Yeah. It had all gone one way. Um, Japan had been fighting since 1931, and. Japan had conquered half of China. It had occupied Korea for a long time. It had taken Indochina. Mm. And Germany had fought ten consecutive wars in Norway, Denmark, the Low Countries, France, Yugoslavia, Greece, uh, the Blitz. With them. And it had won all nine of those ten. It, it hadn't defeated Britain. But all of that changed into a global war. And, and that wasn't what, known as World War II this period in right. the 19th. It, it didn't. It wasn't called World War II until June 22nd of 1941, when for some reason Germany attacked its ally, the Soviet Union, and then six months later Japan attacked Britain and the United States, and then four days later, for some reason, strange reason, Germany and Italy declared war in the United States. At that point, there was fighting from Manchuria all the way. Uh, off the, the coast of Miami and from the Arctic Circle in Norway all the way to the Sahara Desert and in the Pacific, soon from the Aleutians to the Indian Ocean. So at that point, one billion of the two billion people alive in 1941 were at war. Right. And it was called, it was called World War II here and then Second World War in England. And then they, they, re-cha- they renamed the Great War to be World War One. Right. The uh, World War One was actually, uh, you know, I have to tell you a little story. That I'm going to give my age away. Uh, I was in kindergarten, maybe first grade, and World War Two, by the way, and uh, it's hard to remember everything. But the uh, an older teacher, well, everybody was old when you're that young, but she was an older lady and she was crying and she was talking about. I might have been right after that week of uh, December seventh, nineteen forty-one, and she was telling us that. She was promised uh, that World War One would be the war to end all wars. Obviously, didn't happen. So I, th- that stuck in my head since I was five or six years old. And yeah, here and, that, and that was yeah. that was on the mind of people who fought 
World War II, then the Allies very early on at the Casablanca Conference said this time around we're not going to have an armistice and let Germany walk back from land that's occupying mm. and say, you know, we just want to start over or quit now. We're going to have an unconditional surrender and we're going to go into Berlin and Rome and Tokyo and destroy these countries' political systems so we don't have to do this a third time. So that was why it, made, it was very expensive to do that. Mm. Why, why do you think, uh, now, we knew that uh, we obviously, I, I think you, you when you talk about it in your book, it started with the border clashes, uh, you know, quite, you know, and uh, throughout the different European countries that you're talking about, and uh, and they grew into uh, the day you just mentioned, War, World War Two. But by the way, there was, the book uh, is Second World Wars, plural. Why is that? I have to ask you that. Well, it was try to reflect, as I said earlier, that. There were all of these wars that were only roughly grouped together. So there was fighting in Burma, there was fighting in the Sahara, there was fighting up in the uh, North Sea, there was fighting off the coast of Florida. And the people who were fighting these wars were really not, didn't really know how they were connected to one side or the other. Mm. As I said, somebody in Eastern Europe that invaded Russia... For example, the army that invaded Russia on June 22, 1941, they were Hungarians, they were Finns, they were German, yeah. Italians, Spaniards, around the main force of Germans. But they were fighting on the same side as the Japanese that were in Mongolia and the Italians that were in Somaliland. But if you ask any of the soldiers, do, they, do you know that you're on the same axis side as a guy mm. killing Chinese? I don't think they did. They had no idea. Yeah. No. And I don't think we 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 really wanted to be with the Soviets when they had just gone into Finland and tried to take over all of Finland. Wow. It was, had been an ally of the United States, so it was a very confused. So I try to sort those confusions out in the book. And no one does it more in detail than than your book, uh, Victor Hansen. So you know, you know, was that uh, were they working together? When I say they, I'm talking about uh, the Axis. Uh, uh, Nazis or Axis Germany and Imperial uh, Empire of Japan was was that their intent to to sort of work uh, with each other? Well, they had the same ideology, but the irony was that the Allies that were, were much more diverse. I mean, there was British, the British Empire, and American democracy and mm-hmm. Soviet communism. They had nothing in common except they could all claim that. Axis countries, Germany and, and Japan, had surprised attacked them, mm. or in the case of Britain, surprised attacked their ally Poland. And you wouldn't think they would work together, but they all worked very closely together. You'd Amazing. think that the Axis, who had the same ideology, would have worked very closely, but they didn't. When Pearl Harbor happened, Hitler asked Ribbentrop, his foreign minister, where Pearl Harbor was. He had no idea where it was. Amazing. And when, and when he went into the Soviet Union, Mussolini said, why did he do that? And when Mussolini went into Albania and Greece, Hitler said, nobody told me he was going to do that. Mm. So they had they didn't coordinate, and that was one of the reasons really that helped them to lose so quickly. Right. Mm. So, they, uh, so they blundered, to quote you, the Axis power yeah. blundered uh, in regard to yeah. that. They yeah. had, they. They were very good at short border wars in their immediate vicinity from 39 to 41. But once 
they got in a war with the United States and the Soviet Union, um, whose combined population together was, um, it was almost 400 million people, mm-hmm. and whose GDP, the United States would have a gross domestic product bigger than all the com- combatants together by 1945, then the only way they could have beaten us and the British and the Russians, given our material advantages, was they had to take uh, take their land and make a you know a fortified or an enclave around it before our economy is geared up for war. And they almost did that in 1942. If we if we were alive in August 1942, the Russians had surrounded Stalingrad. The Japanese were on Guadalcanal. Rommel had just taken Tobruk. He was on his way to the Suez. Huh. And yet, just five month, four months later, by the end of the year, the American economy had kicked in. The Soviets had moved their industry beyond the Ural Mountains. And the Sixth Army was destroyed at Stalingrad, the German Sixth Army. We retook Guadalcanal. We destroyed We stopped. Uh, we, being the British, stopped Rommel at El Alamein. And then the next three years, the rest of 43, 44, and 45 were largely, we were going to win the war, but it was a question of if you really want to go into the interior of Germany and Italy and Japan, then you're going to have to pay a high price because they have 18 million people under arms. Yeah. And they've been armed since the 1930s, and they have a sort of a suicidal ideology. But we made that decision, and that was, that's one of the reasons that the war went on another two years. We could have had an armistice probably in 43, and they would have probably quit, but then we would have been stuck dealing with them for the next 60 years. Mm. I like one of your quotes, and uh, we we defeated uh, the Axis powers by uh, Russian blood, uh, American muscle, and uh, British savvy, smarts. So uh, yeah, I think I think that's true. I'm not not that that we didn't have. I know. You know, a lot of blood and, and savvy. Correct. But that was the British were pretty experienced. They had wonderful technology. They had great leadership. Mm. The American industry was building a bomber an hour at the Willow, plant, Willow Run plant in Michigan. And Henry Kaiser was building a 10,000 ton Liberty ship, one every four days in Oakland. Wow. And wow. nobody thought you could do that. The Germans were sinking. 20 or 30 Allied ships per month, right. sometimes longer, and they said they'll run out of ships, and then their intelligence said, no, the, the, uh, the Americans alone are making that much every month, and they didn't believe it, and they didn't believe that we could build, you know, 15,000 four-engine bombers. As quickly, as quickly, uh, as quickly. quickly as we did, that's uh, uh, amazing, because I, I do realize that in a short time. Uh, we had the Brooklyn Navy Yard going. We had uh, in California when you uh, go uh, where you are from, uh, at the Navy base over there. It was just and everybody seemed to work together. And I say everyone, civilians as well as well. You yeah, know, it was. The civilians yeah. were we were highly mobilized. We only had 140 million people, and mm. yet almost 12 and a half million were in the military, and another 50 million were in war-related factories. And nobody thought, nobody in the German or Japanese world thought that the United States would be able to mobilize so quickly, or that we would, given our isolation right. in the movies. Yeah. Japan thought they would really punish us at Pearl Harbor, and they sank or damaged nine battleships. And 
they said, well, the three carriers weren't there, and Yamamoto basically said, it doesn't really matter, they won't fight. Right. And they didn't, they had no idea that we were already building a fleet that was twice as large as the one lost at Pearl Harbor. Uh huh. And, and would become ten times as large. But why were we, why were we building a fleet prior to, uh, our involvement in World War II? The New York well, Navy. Uh, yeah. Did we expect I it? Think, did we expect it? I, I think, uh, you know, history tells us in certain areas that, uh, we knew we were going to get involved in uh, in World War II. Now, is that correct? Yeah. That we knew I it? I think so. I think we had a Georgia congressman, Carl Vinson, and he was head of the House Naval Committee, and it became the Armed Services Committee. And in 1935, 1938, 1939, and 1940, he pushed through a series of construction bills, and everybody thought we were in the Depression, we can't do this, but he authorized 16 new battleships, uh, 24 new carriers. So when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, all of those were already either under construction or in, in, in under had been approved. Hmm. And that navy and people thought that he was crazy because we already had the second largest navy in the world in 1941, hmm. the Atlantic and Pacific fleets. But they just didn't believe that anybody would build a, a navy of that size and. Very ironic that a Georgia congressman from a rural district would be almost the only American for a decade who clamored and lobbied Roosevelt to build, you know, this huge fleet. And so once we got in the war, we didn't have to wait 10 years. This thing was already coming in. And within two years, admirals like Halsey and Spruance and Nimitz could put out fleets that had 10 aircraft carriers, and each one of them was bigger and better and better equipped than the Japanese. Amazing. Uh, so, uh, but why didn't we, uh, you, you believe that uh, we knew that we were going to be attacked December 7th or whatever day? I don't think we knew that we were going to be attacked on December 7th, but oh. I think mm-hmm. that we knew that sometime in the next two months, in December and January, that the Japanese were going to preempt and attack us. Right. We thought it was going to be in the Philippines, and we just sent some B-17s over. But we also knew, at least the Roosevelt administration knew, that there was going to be a window between, say, December of 1941 and August or October of 1942 before this new fleet came in and new planes came in, that we were going to be very vulnerable. Right. Because Because the Japanese knew that on... If you count up carriers, battleships, and you compare a Wildcat from Zero Fighter or a Devastator torpedo bomber to a Kate, uh, the Japanese had better planes, they had more carriers, they had more battleships, and, and, that, and they knew that. And so there was a great fear in Washington that until this new fleet is built, we've got to get through this six-month period because the Japanese could attack almost anywhere in the Pacific and we couldn't do anything about it. We didn't think they would go into Pearl Harbor because it was midwinter, hmm. 3,500 miles from Tokyo, hmm. and it was high seas. They would have to refuel all of their six carriers. They had 50 ships, and they would have to have radio silence so one ship at night couldn't talk to the other one, and nobody's ever done that before. And they, they just said, nobody can do that. And, and truth, when we did it the next year on the Doolittle Raid, we sent the... Enterprise and Hornet, and we didn't, we couldn't do it. They left um, Hawaii, and after 
1,600 miles, the Japanese found out where they were, and they had to launch the planes early. But just nobody had thought the Japanese were that good, and yet they were. And so um, that's how they surprised us at Pearl Harbor. But we had a we had a, uh, a suspicion that in, the, in that six-month window, right. that was the only way they could strike. If they didn't strike by June or August of 1942, they were going to be in trouble because of the fleet that was coming on. Mm. Coming online. Mm. So you, you think it's because the uh, uh, the Jap- Japan and the Japanese military, obviously Germany, were more disciplined than well we were at that time. So I, when the war started, they had been fighting, you know, for a decade in China, right? And they and they had discovered things about ground support and armor and and battleships and carriers. Same thing with Germany; they've been fighting really, if you count. The Czech invasion of Czechoslovakia, or the Anschluss, mm. since 1938, and so they had a, a much more sophisticated idea of what a modern war was. So it took us about a year to catch up. But by 19 mid 1942, or maybe say December of 42, January of 43, if you look at the Americans, the First Marine Division in Guadalcanal, they outfought the Japanese. If you look what we were in Sicily, we outfought the Germans, and we had so much more supplies. And uh, Japan never really updated their original type of weaponry, and by that I mean they they kept trying to build the same type of carrier. Oh. They kept building. They didn't update the Zero fighter, and we know we started the war with Wildcats and P40s, and then we were into mm-hmm. P38s, and then we had new carrier planes with Hellcats. And we had courses, and then we had Thunderbolts, and and we were producing uh, every six months a new model of fighter. And so by the end of the war, American planes were going, and they'd started going off at 230 miles. They were up to 430 miles mm-hmm. an hour. And the Japanese, and even the Germans couldn't match that. They tried to with rockets and jets, but right. the Americans were so much more practical. So when we had a new weapon system, we asked questions like, how many dollars does it take to drop a ton of explosives 22,000 miles away? And then we dealt in that way of developing a weapon. The Germans just said, we're going to build rockets, V1 and V2 rockets. But if you look at how much that cost for a 2,000-pound warhead versus a squadron of B-17s dropping much more explosive, it was, it was about one to a hundred cheaper to invest in a four-engine bomber. Well, amazing. And, and they didn't understand that. So they never built a four-engine bomber. Germans, the Italians never built one. The Japanese didn't build one. We built probably between fifteen and 18,000 B-17, B-24, B-29, and the British were the Lancasters. So uh, we they just did, never understood. Yeah, we, we, we did. They never understood. Hmm. How much quicker. Now, Germany, uh, they had the, uh, you see, you mentioned rockets. They were called uh, blockbusters. They were using, I think, uh, they couldn't. They couldn't get across the English, uh, English canal, uh, channel, I should say. But the, then why were they using blockbusters to uh, what they call, uh, which were these uh, rockets? Uh, totally? Well, they they called them. They had all kinds of names. Yeah. The official name was vengeance weapons. Uh huh. And they were called V one, and V one was like a cruise missile. It yeah. had a pulse, and it carried about two thousand pounds. About. Oh, 350 miles an hour, and they, they cut the engine out on a little gyroscope, and it would drop very inaccurate. 
And then they followed that by, in March of 1944, with an intercontinental rocket, the V-2. It had the same amount of uh, explosive, 2,000 pounds, but it, it went into the stratosphere, and it, it fell down at a speed of about 18,000 miles, and you couldn't stop it. Uh-huh. You could shoot down a cruise missile, but you couldn't shoot down the V-2. But the problem with the whole program, it it cost the Germans in their develop, R&D about, in today's dollars, uh, excuse me, in 1944 dollars, about a billion dollars. Hmm. And for that amount of money, they could have built about 25,000 four-engine bombers, which each bomber carried about six, depending on the bomber, five, four to five times as much explosive, much cheaper to deliver it. Mm-hmm. And the Americans, once they caught on with uh, fighter escorts and drop, they could drop the auxiliary fuel tanks. And they, 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 they took them a while to get used to strategic bombing, but by 1944, they were at very cheap cost, wiping out the rural, the transportation, the uh, coal liquefaction plants in Germany. And there was no way in the world Hitler could afford to do that with rockets to, to Britain, for example. He had no ability to hit the United States. Mm. Uh, it's kind of stupid to start a global war when you don't you you know from the outset that you have no ability to damage the manpower base or the industrial base of your enemy. Uh, you know, I think they were so sure of themselves. My, my guest, uh, Professor Victor Davis Hanson, and the book is uh, Second World Wars, plural, and. Uh, uh, you know, you put a lot of work into this. I, I, I have to ask you, how were we able to do such great? I browse through many of your uh, many of your books, and uh, you know, I interview a lot of authors, but I, I just can't recall one that your book is not just a quickie and it's out there. It's it's all like this book, the uh, Second World Wars. It's all in detail. I mean, how do you find the, the time, the money, and the engine and the energy to, to do to do that? Well. It's harder. I'm 64 now, and my first book, I was uh, mm. 27. And it's uh, it, that's a good, very good question, because when you, you want to do a new book, you think uh, when you're in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s, and I've written 24 of them now, you, you get excited. You may be teaching eight classes a, a year, and you may have a, a family, but you, you just think it's so exciting you're going to do, find time. Right. But when, you get, when you get in your 50s and 60s, you start to think in a way that's not good for an author. You start to think, let me think how many hours I worked on that book. It's 3,000 hours. That was probably, you know, 20 hours a week on top of my regular job. Yeah. Uh, and that's 100,000 hours a year, three mm-hmm. years. So do you really want to sit still when you come home from work um, and you have children or you're, and you start to, you even start doing crazy things like saying, how much money per hour am I making? Is it worth it? Yeah. How about your back? And when you start doing that, and you never do that when you're younger. No. So, so when people ask me now to write a book, <laughs> uh, I think to myself, at 64, I haven't been to a lot of places in the world. I like to I like to relax on my farm. Do I really want to drop all that and sit at a desk uh, 20 extra hours on top of what I'm doing? 
and it makes it hard. This book was about a, a much. It took me a little bit longer than three thousand hours. So. Wow! I, I just, it, uh, yeah, it's 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 uh, amazing. And, you know, it's true. When you're 25 years old, you think you're going to be 25 years old forever. And you do. So, and, and you, you know that from your own profession, you hit a a point. Yes. Maybe your listeners can identify it with. On one side, there's youthful vigor and strength and idealism and energy. On the other side, there's <laughs> yes. accumulated experience and wisdom. And, and I don't know when you hit the pivot, but it seems to me, as I look back at my writing career, somewhere around 53 to 55, I had enough experience, so it came easy. I'd read so much, and yet I was still pretty... My eyes were great. I was, I was still... But when you get into your <laughs> mid-60s, you kind of tilt to the other side where you have all that experience, but you, you don't remember as well and you're not as vigorous as well. So, But that being said, there's a lot of great historians that write into their 80s and 90s. Mm. Well, vigorous is really the, uh, the I could understand that. You know, that's uh, uh, amazing how we say, well, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it later. You know, we start to do that. And uh, Yeah, you we know. do. And, and um that was a big issue during World War II because if you look at the ages of the people who led us and the health, not just Roosevelt, but the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Leahy, George Marshall, um, Ernest King, Amazing. and um, you start to look at their ages, they're all men in their mid-60s. Well, let's, get, let's continue that. i got to take a quick break. Yeah. All right, and they're hanging there. I'm going to open the phones as well, you know. I'm, uh, but you know what happens? You, you, he's so interesting. I'm afraid we're not going to get any calls because I'm getting, I am getting uh, messages uh, on my cell phone. Ask me how long you're going to be on. Anyway, hanging there, uh, Victor, Professor Victor Davis Hanson. We'll be right back in about 30 seconds. Thank you. This is WGBB AM 1240 and W240DF-FM 95.9 Freeport, New York. (laughs) Juice, Mom. Juice, juice, juice. Mommy, why are we going to the store? Mom, Mom, I want juice. Mom, Mom. Your child will have different needs at different stages of life, and that includes the car seat. See, car crashes are a leading killer of children ages 1 to 13. Protect your child's future at every stage of life. Go to safercar.gov slash the right seat. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Uh, we're back. We're back. Uh, back with the Professor Victor Davis uh, Hansen. Uh, his great book is uh, Second World Wars. 631-888-8811. If you want to ask the professor a question, I'll make a statement. 631-888-8811. One. How we left off? We left off. We were talking about the ages, and uh, a lot of the young people, including an older brother of mine, uh, was 18 and a half when they hit Omaha Beach. You know, so they were we, uh, piss and vinegar, as they say, and it's the same thing in the police department. You know, so that's why there's a cutoff age when you're uh, law enforcement, because beyond 63, you, you you're history, unless you're a supervisor or a detective or when you leave, if you're going to go back into police work, like I did, I went back as the chief of police. So, but I wasn't going to go knocking down doors anymore. That's for sure. So you were yeah. talking, yeah, no, you're talking about the age of many of our our leaders in World War II. How did we left off on on that? Uh, well, uh, 
Roosevelt, to give you one example, right in the critical year 1944, mm-hmm. he was up for his fourth term, and we know now that his blood pressure was typically about 220 over 180, mm-hmm. and he probably had some melanoma tumors removed from his face. He had chronic sinus and urinary infections, and he was, he was he, you know, he would die in April, mm-hmm. and... Uh, he was a very sick man at the Yalta Conference. And if you look at Churchill, who was older, he was 67, he right. had pneumonia flying in unpressurized cabins all the way to Russia, to North Africa. And uh, he was probably saved when he was went to visit British troops in Morocco. With Penicillin had just come out. Mm. And he took some for pneumonia, and it cured him. He probably would have died otherwise. We're so, talking about, you're talking it, about Winston Churchill? Winston Churchill. I thought it was. Yeah, I didn't think it was penicillin. I thought it was. The, I thought it was cognac. <laughs> well, he yeah. did drink, but not he, as much as everybody said he did. Oh, okay, that's why I said that. Hitler. Hitler believed that he had to go into Russia. Oh. <laughs> when he was still in his early fifties, mm. and he felt that if he was in mid fifties, he would be. He wouldn't be as sharp. And right. They talked about that all the time, but uh, mm. of the major six leaders, Mussolini and Hitler and Pojo and Churchill, mm. Stalin and Roosevelt, Roosevelt and Churchill probably were in the least uh, healthy state. Wow, we can see yet that. Churchill would live to be 92, I, I think. I know. That's why That's why I say it's the great cognac you had. I got Johanna on the line. Uh, Johanna, yes. you have a question or statement for Professor Victor Davis Hanson? Yes, it's Johanna. Thank you. Yes, Johanna. Yes. Hi, Dr. Hansen. I first want to thank you for giving us your brilliant and factual insights into whatever subject you write about. Um, for example, there are so many different interpretations of the Bible, leaving us to have to choose which is our closest to our beliefs. And I have two questions. Um, uh, one is, do you have, do you think we have anything to fear from the North Korean, you know, regime? And the other is, how, how do you feel about Nostradamus' writing centuries ago that it will be eventually a yellow world led by red? Well, I've read Nostradamus, and I'll just, I, I, I'm not, I think he wrote so many things that some of them were going to be right, but most of them were wrong. But <laughs> as far as North Korea, well, if we have any lessons from World War II, it is uh, deterrence, and that's the ability to warn an enemy not to attack you because it would be a, a, a suicidal act depends mm-hmm. on having military and spiritual superiority. So why did the Japan, Japanese attack the United States on December 7th when we had such a larger economy, larger population, and we were so adept at war? And they really did believe, given our prior isolationism, that we wouldn't fight. And so what mm-hmm. I'm worried about North Korea is that I mean, if you look at North Korea's population of 25 million, we have 330. We have 6,500 deliverable nuclear weapons. They probably have about eight. And we have a Navy uh, that's about 100 times larger. So the question is, why would Kim Jong-un even dare think that he would want to get in a war with us? And the answer is that uh, over the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations, we have given about six billion dollars to North Korea to, to behave wow. and we've kept we've had six party talks we begged China and both China and North Korea felt that 
it was kind of like mowing the lawn that they could have they could unleash North Korea to do something or threaten somebody, and then we would just say, well, we'll pay the money, or we'll have discussions, and we'll let it go to the next administration. So they never really believed there was anything. Uh, there was any downside in becoming a nuclear power and threatening their enemies. China kind of enjoyed what North Korea is doing. So now what we have to do is we have to restore deterrence. So General Mattis at the Defense Department is flying bombers all around the coast of North Korea. He's got three big aircraft carriers out there. We're pressuring the Chinese. And they're playing good cop. They're telling everybody over the world, you know, Donald Trump is predictable unpredictable. He might do anything on any given day, so you guys better be careful. So, mm-hmm. You know, as a policeman, the bad cop, good cop routine. Yeah. And then they come, they being Tillerson and Pompeo and Nikki Hayden, mm. McMaster, and they say, you know, you better corral North Korea because Trump would like to do this to them. And mm. we're trying to, in other words, restore deterrence so they understand that we will do something and it's not going to be good for them. And therefore, we won't have a war. Mm. Well, thank you very much for your answers. Thank you. And thank you again for your good work. Thank uh, you. Johanna, thank you. Thank now, you uh, just a question. Now, you know, can you can you sort of intimidate, and I'll use that word, or, or frighten, uh, as Trump would call a Kim Jong a uh, sick puppy, something like that, you know? Uh, yeah. And, pup, and he, he never said he was a, a little fat kid. He didn't say that, by the way. Trump. Anyway, just uh, the reason why I'm saying that because Trump had said I never, I never call him that. But uh, people are sort of uh, like the Japanese; they had the kamikaze. So if people believe, or uh, there's somewhere else, there's a you know, uh, like Islamic Muslims, they believe there's 72 versions waiting for them. So how do you, how do you keep someone in place if they're not, in other words, they're not afraid of death? Or, or unless, well, I, I've you know, never. Mm-hmm. I've spent most of my life studying wars and writing about them. Right. And I've never seen an instance where anybody should be taken seriously that they're not deterrable. And let's look at the one group in our own life who right. said that they would never surrender and they love giving their life to Allah. That's ISIS. Yes. They beheaded, they burned people. And under mm. the prior administration, we had rules of engagement that sort of appeased them. We wouldn't if some of our soldiers led or helped Iraqis take a city, then we wouldn't use air power to bomb them as they fled. Under mm-hmm. this administration, there's different rules of engagement. And if you look at people, talk to people who are coming back from Syria, American soldiers, they tell you or you read stories that they're writing that really ISIS is gone. It may re- reappear somewhere, but we destroyed 95% of it. We did it in just six months under Trump. And the reason we did it is we bombed and we shelled. And if somebody said, if an ISIS torturer or psychopath was in a house mm. with a family, we, we said, we don't really care whether he's in that house or not. We, we, we're going to get him. And that right. created a, a sense of fear. So these people who just a year ago said they loved it, to cut people's heads off and you right. couldn't stop us are now begging us to take surrender. And they're coming to Americans and saying, please, please, we didn't mean it. Would you take us prisoner? Because if you don't, mm. the Iraqi army is going to kill us. And 
So I think the same thing with the Japanese. After we started bombing mainland Japan and after we took Okinawa and after we had the napalm raids of Japan, the Japanese uh, kamikaze program had to go, to start serving serious two and three uh, drinks of sake before the yes. pilots would take off. They wouldn't do it. And then they said, we're going to get English major. Anybody who speaks English in the university, we're going to target them. Huh. Because even their most diehard samurai uh, warriors would not want to do it because they knew they were going to lose. And you know, they not only knew they were going to lose, they knew that the American Navy and Air Force and carriers were going to stop them before they got to a major ship after Okinawa. Yeah, so, no, I, I, believe, I believe that. I believe uh, because they're cowards. Uh, the bottom line is they're all cowards. And, you know, I guess that we've, uh, the analogy would be just like a bully, you know. So, yeah, I think you, that's, you remember the SS in World War II, uh, if you were in the SS hierarchy, you had a tattoo of your blood type on your inside of your arm. And right. these were the psychopaths that went into Russia and started butchering Jews and killing them and shooting mm. them. And they did the same thing in France. And so when the war started to go badly in 44 and 45, and the Americans were capturing SS soldiers, and the British and the, the Russians shot anybody they found with a blood type tattoo under their oh. arm. <laughs> and they were trying to take the tattoos off because... They were getting rid of their SS uh, insignia, and they didn't want any Allied soldier to know they'd ever been in the SS. Well, that, then they would they would love to surrender to the uh, to the Americans. Then we have Richie on the line. Uh, Richie, uh, question for for Professor uh, Hansen. Hi, Professor Hansen. Very interesting. You have some background, and your research is incredible. Getting Thank away you. from the war a little bit, um, you had a book, I believe, Obama's Dream. Yeah. And I know you do an extensive, intensive research and investigation on these things. <laughs> and if you recall, at the beginning of Obama, when he threw his hat in the ring, uh, Donald Trump offered quite a few million dollars to see his original birth certificate. And uh, I was wondering what your feeling is. Uh, was Obama really born in America or an American citizen? And the reason why I mention it, because I don't recall any president ever criticizing a former president or a current president the way it's going mm. on today. So I wanted to yeah. get your feeling about Obama, even though it's a little bit away from the war, but if yeah. anybody has the answer, I know it's the professor. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the way to look at it is that I, I do think Obama was born in the United States, but he he did two thing, three things that made people doubt that. I think wrongly doubt it, but you have to give them some empathy because he did this. Number one, when his when his mother uh, was divorced from his father very quickly, according to the official narrative, she married another man named Sotero, who was an Indonesian. They went to an Indonesia with Obama, was young man in grade school, and he took dual citizenship out. Oh. So he was an American citizen, and he was an Indonesian citizen, even though there's some controversy because Indonesia claims that it didn't allow dual citizen. He came back. He grew up back in Hawaii. He, he applied to Occidental College as a Fulbright Fellow. That means you have to be a foreign national. Mm -hmm. But I think what he was trying to do was get the advantage of saying that he had been at one time a dual citizen, both American and Indonesian. Therefore, 
he could get an edge by giving a free, um, he could get a free ride to the Fulbright program. The third thing he did that caused controversy in his first book, Dreams from His Father, I think it was a marketing gimmick. He wanted to brag that he, for uh, minority or cultural reasons, that he had been born in Kenya. So the first hardcore edition of Dreams from My Father, if you look at mm. the advertising um, sort of little slip that went out with the book, it says Barack Obama um, is a state representative in, in Chicago, Illinois, and he was born in Kenya. Mm. And he said later that the ad man at his publisher just exaggerated. But I think what was more likely, not that he was born in Kenya, but he thought that was neat and cool for readers to think that he had an odd name and he claimed that he'd been born in Kenya. Remember, he was born Barack Hussein Obama, but he never used that name. He went to school in Hawaii as Barry Dunham. Mm. And then later when his mother remarried Barry Sotero. It was only when he applied to college that he started to go back to his birth name, Barack Hussein Obama, mm -hmm. because for obvious reasons that, that sounded more trendy or multicultural. Oh, was that a crime? Would that be a crime? Would he do that? Because if he, he, he did, I don't think so. He, because he did get, he did use the foreign exchange uh, student uh, funding to, to go to college. So, so he kind of brought it, I guess what I'm saying is kind of brought it on himself. Because right. When he became... Correct. President, he made he made fun of everybody like Trump. Yes, were, he said they were conspiracy. But all he had to do was just give a press conference and say, "Look, I uh, obtained a Fulbright fellowship my first year in college. Usually, those are given only to foreign students. Right. I had dual citizenship. That's why I got it. And mm -hmm. then number two, I misled people on my first book by having a press kit sent out that says I was born in Kenya. That's not right, and I apologize for that. But okay. instead, he just said, you're all conspiracy people, shame on you, and that got people angry. Right. Well, I, I guess uh, that probably worked better for him, I would think, you know? Yeah. So, now, you, your books, now, you, you uh, uh, I just wanted, uh, Richie, I guess you were uh, off the line. I want to oh, thank you. And Dr. Hans, uh, just tell you this, Lieutenant Colombo had nothing over you. You did a fantastic <laughs> investigation, and thank you for that. I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Do you know who Lieutenant Colombo is? Uh, yes, he is. Okay, <laughs> very good. Good, good analogy. So uh, you know, you know, but you you have a uh, uh, what's the word? But you know, you, you love to study. Uh, you, you talk about uh, you know. 300 Spartans who have, uh, you, you talk about uh, Napoleon. You seem to have an interest on uh, people like that and, and, and pretty much wars that uh, uh, the mentioned globally for global uh, wars around the world that uh, from the beginning of time, and that seems to be like a specialty for you. Yeah, I, I started out as a classical, I taught classical languages, Greek and Latin especially, and uh, I, I, that's how I got introduced to war. And, and when you're an academic for a while, you want to go into a field that's not crowded. So when I was an ancient historian and philologist, everybody never talked about war because they thought, you know, it's sort of like an oncologist that studies cancer. They thought, well, maybe that guy likes cancer. He wouldn't study cancer, how to cure it. But it's really the opposite. Oncologists study cancer, uh, tumors to cure people. So I, I wanted to study war to see how they could be prevented. 
And when you said that about um, Kim Jong-un and Trump calling them names, I've never studied or found a war to give an example where somebody called somebody a name and that started a war. Right. All the <laughs> 1930s, uh, Roosevelt called Hitler terrible names. Mm. But Hitler didn't go to war with it. What's, what's more dangerous, if you're a leader and you issue a threat or you state that you won't do something. So if Dean Acheson says at a press club, South mm. Korea 1950 is not part of America's responsibility to defend, then North Korea invaded it. Mm. If April Glaspie, the, inv- the ambassador to Iraq in 1990, tells Saddam Hussein, we don't have an interest in a border dispute in the Arab world, and the next week he went into Kuwait. Mm. Or if a British parliamentarian says, we're going to pull out a minesweeper out of the Falklands, and we, we agree with Argentina, we'll start using the name Malvina, then Argentina invaded the Falklands in 1981. Mm. So what's I think is more dangerous if you set red lines like Obama did in Syria or yeah. step over lines with Putin or deadlines with the Iranians and you don't enforce them, then you end up with something like ISIS growing in Syria or North Korea with an intercontinental nuclear tip thermonuclear weapon. But what Trump's sloppy language does not start a war Correct. unless he were to say something like well, we'll never have a war with North Korea, or you can rest assured that I would never attack anybody, or I, I promise you that we have, this can only be solved by diplomacy. Hmm. And when you start talking like that, the enemy wrongly concludes that even though you have a, a, a huge air force or navy or army, and even though if he had those same assets, he would attack, he, he gets contempt for you. He, right. a, a person like Kim Jong-un thinks, They've got all that stuff, mm. and yet they've taken it off the table. That must mean they're morally, spiritually weak. I'm going to attack them because they'll never do anything to me. And they think they would rather, they're so scared of losing Portland that they would never wipe me out. But mm. if you sound, it's kind of counterintuitive, but if you sound on, well, you know that in your own investigation, that if you let a defendant or a suspect know what you're going to do and what you're not going to do, and there's no gray area and there's no unpredictability. They, they treat that magnanimity not with thanks, but right. gratitude, but contempt as you're weak. And that, that's just the way human nature is. Absolutely. And, you know, in other words, they misinterpret that for, like you just said, for, for weakness, you know, and, uh, we've showed, we indicate, we've showed a lot of that, uh, for eight years, I, I, I would, I would say. Yeah, so, I think they got it wrong in the media. I, I hear don't. the media saying that, America, Trump is hated abroad, but I talked to a lot of foreign journalists, China, North, uh, South Koreans, Japanese, where I work at the Hoover Institution, and they come through, and I go abroad a lot, and I can tell your audience they have exactly the opposite uh, impression of Trump. They may not like him, but they feel, our allies feel that he's more likely to protect them, and our enemies feel he's more likely to punish them. Correct. Correct, and, and, and they, once everybody knows the game, how everybody's going to behave, then there's less likelihood of a war. But if your allies think that you're not going to protect them, and your enemies think you're not going to punish them, then there's so much confusion. Somebody tries something stupid, and mm. so I was very worried when Obama was president. To tell you the truth, that 
whether it was Iran or whether it was uh, North Korea, right. or Putin going into all these countries, that they never thought the United States would do anything and there was no consequences for aggression. Mm, the opposite now. I think it's the yeah. opposite. I, I have, I, I believe that Putin uh, has a high regard for Donald Trump, and, and you know, in, in that aspect, you know. Uh, yeah, I think I think Putin's much more careful now. Yes. I think he understands that yes. he, if he were to do something and go into the Baltic states or mm. Lithuania or something, he 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 doesn't know what Trump would do. Yes, and he doesn't want to take that chance. I think we're trying to get that message to China that they better it's control true. North Korea because. Trump is capable of everything from expelling Chinese students out of American universities mm. to confiscating their property in Beverly Hill. <laughs> Who knows what he would do? Correct, correct. So, and they, and, and that they're afraid of that. I talk to people from the Chinese wow. consulate and journalists, and, they, and they're very worried about Trump. Well, that's good. Keep them on their toes, yeah. I think. You know? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of relieved that's the truth. Yes. Whether we like it or not, I believe that's the uh, truth as well. Some of your other books... Uh, I, you know, we, obviously we can't talk about all of them. I just want to touch on touch on some uh, Mexifornia, right? Am I pronouncing that yeah, right? Yeah, I, I wrote <laughs> that in yeah, I wrote that in 2002, uh, 16 years ago. And I was well, we had an open border here in California, and we had at the time about a million illegal aliens, and everybody was saying this is wonderful. We were going to get cheap <laughs> labor, and I noticed where I live. The people who were coming in were not coming from the border and speaking English. They were from deep, deep down in Mexico and Oaxaca. Oh. And most of them had no eighth grade education. They needed a lot of health care, legal services, educational. And since that time, California was the wealthiest state in the country. And now when you look at the state, one oh. out of every three welfare recipients lives in California. One fifth of the state lives below the poverty line. Uh, One-fourth of all Californians was not born in the United States. Mm. So we're spending, instead of a third of our budget on infrastructure, roads and dams, we're spending a third of it on Medi-Cal, health services. And if you look at the budget, it's just upside down from what I predicted. I I, I kind of predicted that in that book. I said, if we were to continue to do this for the next 20 years, the state will be dysfunctional, and now we're rated 49th in the 49th in the nation in our highways, 46th out of 50 in our schools, and yet we have the highest income basket of income, uh, gasoline and sales tax in the country. Wow, you, you, you did an uh, uh, Notre Dame prediction in your book, Mexifornia. Well, it wasn't hard to do because <laughs> you could just see what you could see the attitude of the corporate right. Uh, in the Republican Party, yeah, that all they wanted was cheap labor, and you could see the left wing that they wanted future voters to turn these exactly. red states blue. Yes. California will never be red; it will never vote uh, elect another Pete Wilson or mm. George McMahon or Ronald Reagan as governor, and that's largely because of illegal uh, illegal immigration. I, they also have one of the highest uh, homeless rates uh, in California. Yeah. We do. yeah. Just, we, have, uh, we have rates that nobody would believe. Uh, one out of every three Californians who enters the hospital for any causes, from a broken leg to a gunshot wound wow. to the flu, is found out to have uh, type 2 diabetes. Oh. So we have an epidemic of uh, kidney dialysis 
uh, emergency clinics all over the state, and we're trying to deal with an underclass that has certain habits that are conducive to diabetes, and it's costing billions of dollars right. in California. Uh, and we have the largest number of inmates of any state in our prison system. And uh, um, over 20, 30, yeah. 000, 30, and yes, yes and uh, almost 30% of them are illegal. 30,000 are illegal aliens. Illegal aliens, yeah. So, uh, yeah. And so uh, it's, uh, hmm. and yet you can't, we have these sanctuary cities where if you talk to people in law enforcement, they'll pull somebody over for drunk driving, but they can't call ICE. Right. And have that person deported, even when they get in an accident. Right. And, of course, Californians would be very mad if another state said, we're not going to follow the federal uh, gun registration laws or federal Mm. endangered species laws. If Utah or Montana said, in our state or our city, you can buy a gun off the shelf. We don't care what the federal government says. Right. But, of course, that's exactly what we're doing. We're saying we don't care about federal immigration law. We're not going to follow it. Mm. Well, but nobody, in our case, nobody so far has done anything about it. I can't believe we only have a minute left, uh, Professor Victor Davis Hanson. Your next book, <laughs> do you have the energy? <laughs> I don't know yet. I'm, I'm contemplating that. Uh, usually, this book is selling pretty well. I know. The publishers, they want another book. But uh, you know yourself, when you get in your 60s, you, you look around things and you're a little bit more careful. Absolutely. It was 20 years ago that I said I would have, I'll write two new ones, but it's, now, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking well, about it. By the way, I have your book. It was sent to me. I thank you. You know, your people that sent me uh, this book, and uh, I, I read part of it. I will read it all, because it just grabs you. I have to tell you that. You know, Professor Victor Davis Hanson, thank you. Your research is great. By the way, you're very... Very bright guy, you know. Thank you. And, uh, well, thank, well, thank you for having me. Oh no, it was my it was my pleasure, and uh, I'll be calling you back soon on on your next book, or even discuss yeah. some of your other books. Thank, okay, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Professor. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure with uh, David Sanson, great author. This is uh, Lutalana, and uh, I'll catch you later.